0: Yeah.
1: Bridget Bardini there. Heartbreaker. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests and novelist Kevin Clare and Bridget Bardini joins us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
3: It's a great pleasure. I absolutely love your track. Tell us what it's all about.
2: Ah, oh, well, um, Heartbreaker is about uh, really entering adulthood and learning that um, there there are things in your life that have become very special to you. And just that fear that comes along with that, that you might lose those things. And I suppose it's um, the main message is to just embrace the moment and, and not, you know, ponder on and, and dwell on what could go wrong.
3: I love its electronic sound. There's also a real kind of post electronic goldfrack influence going on there. Tell us who's influenced the single.
2: Oh well, I definitely think that Gold frat would play a part in it for sure. And um I I remember I was listening to a bit of um Chemical Brothers at the time, Daft Punk. So I definitely think I got a sense of that um electronic influence through through those artists and the way that they experiment with sound as well. I really wanted to to try something different to what I'm, you know, usually comfortable with. So uh, yeah, it was really fun to play around, and and I really love the way it turned out.
3: Yeah, it sounds like you really experiment with your music and kind of, you know, just basically play around with stuff and see what works. Tell us a bit about the process you went through to make the track.
2: Well... I suppose the process that I really went through is just, yeah, exactly like you said, experimenting and trial and error and seeing what feels right for, for the track and, and how it could communicate what I want to communicate. Um, and I think that the, the main kind of approach that I took was, was just exactly that trying different sounds um putting things together and seeing how they work and and the the layering and um yeah what speed works as well like what what rhythm is really going to complement the track best so I really tried to get down to the, you know, everything with a fine-tooth kharaman on on this specific track and really try and, you know, bring out a lot of confidence and strength in it as much as possible.
3: So tell us about your journey as a musician. You sound very technically adept.
2: Um, Well, I didn't start that way. (laughs) There's always a journey, you know, where you learn about um, the technical side of things. And I I wanted to, to know about all of that. Uh but yeah, I just really started to learn guitar. I, I'd been playing piano when I was a kid and I, I really wanted to pick up guitar at around eighteen, you know, when I started to delve into musicians like Jeff Buckley and PJ Harvey and um and Beck and and a lot of artists that just really um use guitar in a way that I absolutely loved and I knew that it's something that I needed to learn how to play. Um so I yeah, practiced guitar. Um, started to write my own tracks and and then when I started to record them using very you know limited equipment I I, sometimes I would record with the room even I didn't even (laughs) use a proper like mic setup but it kind of created a nice ambience in some tracks which I like and um, yeah and, and from there I kind of just layered the tracks and realized that I wanted to compose and put arrangements in and 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 make the track um, exactly the way you know I felt it should be. So that that kind of naturally included the production side of it. And over time, I just built upon my knowledge of how to use all the equipment, how to record instruments properly, um, what software works best for what I'm trying to create, and and hardware and all of that. So over time, I really just um, learned the best way to to make a track as um, as finished as possible without the use of a studio.
3: So it sounds like you spend a lot of time, you know, during your day on music. It sounds like it's a real love for you. It's not a chore at all. It's something that you really enjoy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally in love with it. <laughs> it's it's one of those things where, you know, I, I think I feel like I'll never be... Um, there's always something to learn, you know, and it, you can. I was even contemplating the other day. Oh, should I pick up drums? <laughs> should I learn drums? So, because um, I've really just been getting interested in in kind of beat making as well. So that's been really fun, and I thought it would be great to be able to play live drums on on some tracks if I if I could. So it's always just that that um, act of always learning and always adding to skill. The skill set that I've I've got already, and improving my ability to to be as the musician I I suppose the musician that I wish to be in five or ten years. You know, you just have to put the time in and and learn.
3: Yeah, you sound really self sufficient and empowered as a musician. You mentioned where you want to be in five or so years. Tell us a bit about that place.
2: Oh well, I think ideally it would be obviously um music is my hopefully be my sole career and my sole. um uh well it is now already but I'd be living off it you know in a in a in a way where it's not um where I'm comfortable (laughs) financially as well so that would be ideal obviously you know to be able to make uh, a a great career out of something that you love and to be able to Live off that, and I think it would be you know traveling. I'd love to explore um, touring overseas, and I haven't even toured in Australia yet. So hopefully, I would have done that, and I would still be doing that. And uh, yeah, maybe have already released another album, and it, it's it's yeah working on the third album. Even <laughs> you never know. So there's a million things that could happen, but the main thing is I really just. I hope, that I I know that I'll be continuing to, to do music and um, the main goal is to just be able to make it my life and, and to be able to comfortably make it my life.
3: So tell us about the album that Heartbreak is a part of.
2: Uh, it's part of Stellar Lights, which just came out yesterday, which is very exciting. Um, and, yeah, so that, that album is about um, this, it was built around this, uh, very vivid apocalyptic dream that I had where um, really just the world was ending it was coming to an end and um, I just felt I felt everything that was happening and I could see it all so vividly and um, it was one of those situations where you wake up and you feel different because of that experience and i think it uh, enlightened me as to how vulnerable we are as people and how rare it is that we're around uh, just sitting in the middle of this you know ever expanding universe and this that the kind of incredible um gift it is that we have a life and we get to experience all these amazing things so i think the album is really about that whole thing embracing life and and learning from your experiences and the whole coming of age element of of um when I was writing it and just um it's very based in in life and all the things that I was learning at that time and uh and and still learn now and and even listening back to a lot of the tracks like it's they they're all more relevant than ever to me. And, um, yeah, so that's really special to, to be able to bring that all out and see what people, how people connect to the tracks.
3: Tell us about the name Stellar Lights and why you chose it.
2: Well, I chose that name also linking back to that dream um, because I I remember looking up at the sky and, and there was the moon and I remember seeing these stars kind of, crossing, shooting stars, you know, crossing against the moon and, and hitting each other and, um, you know, there, there was like a meteor shower and um, I think it was that's where I got the name because it, it was that stellar lights. It was that kind of it, it felt right because it was really reminiscent of that imagery that triggered a lot of those, you know, a lot of the decisions that I made. After you know having had that experience,
3: tell us about your favourite track on Stellar Life.
2: Oh, I think my favourite track would have to be "Breathe," um, because that one was really special because it's so perfectly um, reflects and and is like a perfect recount of this experience that I had, um, with a friend of mine. And that experience was just so special and, um, and you can hear in the lyrics when you listen to the song it it takes you through that whole thing it show it tells you what I was seeing and and you know the music is telling you how that made me feel and it when I listened to that track with you know that friend that was there um it's pretty amazing because we both really connect to it and and can share where that song has come from and and so i think that's the fact that i can relive that and get s- such peace and satisfaction from it is um, yeah it, it's really special and i i definitely think that that's one of those things that keeps me writing music because it is it allows you to to even put a time capsule to a moment or an emotion and and allows you to reflect upon that in such a beautiful way.
1: Three You're listening to an interview with Bridget Bardini on 3CR's In Your Face.
3: Tell us how the pandemic has impacted on
1: you as a musician and
3: songwriter. It sounds like it's kind of enabled you to thrive a bit.
2: Yeah, I think it has funnily enough. Like one thing it has impacted, I think negatively, is allowing me to obviously experiment with live performance and and being able to to engage that side of myself um, and being able to be face-to-face with an audience. But um, luckily I got a whole bunch of rehearsals in, so I've kind of gotten a taste for that world a little bit. But um, on the other hand, it's really allowed me to absolutely like be – self-sufficient and, and learn new skills and and um, figure out how I can make my music better and, and continue to evolve um, for the best. So it's, it's really allowed me to use that time up in a way that's going to be beneficial to me long term.
1: Any plans for music videos?
2: Uh, actually, not at the moment. Uh, I just released the one for Heartbreaker. And so I think that's the mo- that was the most recent venture. But um, potentially, yes, it really depends on the, the demand as well, whether we feel that it's something that we- there needs to be more videos for more tracks on the album. So right now it's just a, a time where we just wait and see how this is going to go and, and where the album takes everything.
3: Tell us about the video The Heartbreaker.
2: Oh, well, that video really also kind of reflected that imagery of that dream that I had in the way that it's very, it's very much like a dreamscape and it really creates that, that world that the album is is lives in you know when I think about when I listen to even the the instrumental of stellar lights I see a lot of that imagery and and the what I saw in that dream and the way that I felt and um it kind of yeah it, it captures that whole thing where it's it's like you're in in real life and you see a, a real world but it's also intertwined with this abstract place where you know extraordinary things happen and I think and it's kind of non-linear like when you dream you you have this sense of um things don't fully line up but they they do but they don't and it's it's hard to kind of put things puzzle these puzzle pieces together but you get sometimes you get an overall sense of what was going on in your head or you know what thought that you had that day made you have that dream that night or you know so it's that elusive concept of of a dream but also you know seeing that happen um before your eyes and also I love the the neon vibe of it. I think that really worked so well with Heartbreaker. So it also kind of has that sense of, um, using color and, and all of that to complement a lot of the synth sounds in, in Heartbreaker.
3: It sounds like you're really in touch with your dream world.
2: I know. It feels so funny, you know, because a lot of people say, oh God, nobody should tell people about their dreams, you know, <laughs> but this was one of those dreams that I just couldn't help but um, connect it to to the album because so much of the the imagery is exactly what, you know, connected to that experience. Um, it's one of those things that you can't really control. So you have to, you, when you draw those parallels and you see where things originate it's it's kind of out of your hands and um you just have to embrace where it's taken you and the whole the whole project has been kind of that way anyway it's it's felt within my control but also out of my control because I've just had such a um need to just sp- spill out all these tracks and and make something out of them so it's it's been very surreal to see it all come together. And, um, yeah, it's extremely special.
3: And it sounds like your self-sufficiency as a musician has meant that you haven't experienced many barriers as a young woman in the music industry. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Oh, yeah, I feel that I've been extremely lucky, actually. Um, When I was starting to bring out my first demos, um, well, when I was starting to churn them out, I mean, um, my dad had actually just met Simon Rashley, who's my manager, and he's a um, he's had a huge history in the music industry and um, is very well connected. So I, I really felt from he saw the potential in those demos in the beginning, and uh, I really felt from the start I had this um, really great foundation to to feel that I was heard as an artist, heard as a musician and um, nobody was trying to hold me back at all. So I think, and obviously I think that, you know, you just have to, regardless of how things play out in the world, you know, how men might try and demean women and things like that. I think the important thing is, is that if you believe it yourself, and you know that you deserve to be there like anyone else, you just have to, to block out any other um, idea that someone might try and put in your head, you know.
3: Absolutely. It sounds like you have a wonderfully supportive family that's really nurtured you to have great self esteem.
2: (laughs) I've been very lucky. And I think it's, I think when it comes to, um, the artistry side of things, I feel very confident because I feel that that's my strength. You know, that's the thing that, that I'm good at in life. And, and I, so naturally I think there's a confidence there and a self-esteem there and, um, you know obviously there's always going to be things where I, I have to evolve my confidence and break down some barriers like I even experienced that with the the live performance stuff you know I was I was so nervous at the beginning but over time with practice and all of that I felt so much more confident so it's also been something that I've just I've learned through this whole experience too and um And that's helped me in so many facets of life and generally, yeah, my self-esteem and just feeling confident in myself and and that I can, you know, walk into a room full of strangers and um, be able to stand on my own two feet.
3: Bridget Bardini, I absolutely love Heartbreaker. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 3CR.
4: and not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly, about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now.
0: sorry.
1: jones there slave to the rhythm we also heard from pj harvey come on billy well novelist kevin clare has released his new book and we chat this week
3: 3CR.
4: kevin welcome to the program oh thank you so much nice to be back
3: how would you describe the midnight man
4: Uh, Look, my editor, when she sent me the email to say, yes, my publisher would like to um, publish it, would you like a contract? She put it simply as, it's about the good and bad aspects of growing older. And it's something I've forgotten about by the time I submitted it, that, yeah, that's exactly what it's about. It's about growing older. The main character, Stanley, is about to turn 50 and he's got an overbearing mother. He hates his job. He doesn't like his life. His relationship of seven years is pretty much a failure. So he's not looking forward to his upcoming birthday until he meets Asher, a 21-year-old, in his dreams. And Asher takes him on adventures and also gives Stanley the gift of being five years younger each time they meet in each dream. Asher also puts him in situations that help strengthen Stan's character as well so that he can face the age he is and where he is in life with a lot more confidence.
3: It really sounds like Asher is the leader in the relationship. It sounds like they're the wise one. Oh, it's an interesting
4: way to look at it. Um, Asher is a bit mysterious even to me because I want the reader to work out who Asher is for themselves. So I didn't really focus on his whole being and what he represents. So I'll let the reader make their minds up for themselves.
3: Now, I understand the first draft of the novel had like a horror side to it, which you abandoned. Tell us what happened there.
4: Oh, yeah, look, look, and it wasn't the first draft. It was... Um, with my publisher, Nine Star Press, who do a lot of LGBT, oh God, all the letters are getting jumbled, all the queer stuff, um, I really wanted this to be in print, but I could only get it to 45,000 words. So I asked a beta reader to help me work out what can I do? Where can I get the extra 5,000 words from? Her suggestion was this slightly horror bent to it and making Asher a more sinister character. Um, and I, so I weaved in a draft putting in these elements. And when I got to the end, two things really annoyed me. One, all of a sudden I realised there was a big plot hole in doing this and I didn't want to go and rewrite big chunks of the book again as is, this was quite a late draft in, the, in, in this stage. And I have a big thing about the endings to my novels. I know how it's going to end and what how it ends means something. There's a philosophy there. There's a meaning to it. And this totally threw that meaning out of kilter. So I stripped the whole horror idea, but I did keep two characters that were added for the horror version. But this is definitely not a horror. It's a lovely urban fantasy magic realism tale.
3: Ash's invitation for Stanley to slip into eternal sleep. Is that a metaphor for death?
4: Oh, now that's an interesting one. And I think I'll let the reader work that out for themselves, if you don't mind.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. It's so enticing, the dream world, isn't it, for a a fantasy novel? And I mean, you know, before I read the book, I've actually been thinking a lot about the dream world and how little we know about it. What great fodder for a fantasy novel.
4: Exactly, because the dream world can be anything you want. And to be honest, the whole influence for this came, you know, the beautiful uh, song by Kate Bush, Man with the Child in His Eyes.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I love that song. What a what a what a classic
4: from the beginning of the eighties. I think it was, or nineteen seventy eight. Exactly, and um, um, uh, it was it was that song that kind of influenced this idea about someone having a dream lover, but then expanding the dream lover to mean more than just being a lover and writing a romance, being. A th- being a tale about life lessons and life lessons that weren't learned the first time around so the whole kate bush dream lover idea is is kind of where it came from oh, look, I'll also add when I was trying to find a title for this book I, I did the usual thing on Twitter and asked you know hashtag writers community and so many people said dream lover and I thought really that's a little bit obvious but then I asked the same question on Facebook because I just needed the title and this guy told me about this guy that used to come around at midnight because that's the only time he could come around to make love so this guy who helped me out on Facebook said um, I called him the midnight man so that should be the title of your book and I thought oh, that's brilliant that is absolutely brilliant.
3: You've been writing novels, gay fantasy novels for so long I think we're up to novel 10 now. Uh, I can't keep up with them. You've done so many, but did you ever think when you were starting out that you would be a prolific gay fantasy novelist?
4: No, no. I, and and the thing is, I've also written one dystopian, which I'm trying to write the sequel for now, and that threw me a bit. But um, the whole fantasy side's interesting because I don't really read um, much magic realism or urban fantasy myself. I tend to like contemporary novels. And I guess what I do is still write contemporary novels but just make sure there's some magical twist to them because I think in some ways adding those type of elements help say the things you want to say about life. I mean, contemporary novels do it very well, but just adding that extra little bit of, um, I don't know, magic in people's lives, I think helps explain the concept
3: do you find that you know not reading the kinds of novels that you write actually gives you a kind of a a fresh kind of original way of writing because you're not subconsciously transposing stuff and ideas that other authors have come up with
4: i know that's that's a good question and i really don't know um I've got to start because I've even got a few on my to-be-read pile that I want to read, magic realism books, but I've just never got around to them. So until I read them myself, I guess I'm really, you know, just creating my own version of the genre.
3: Do you find that, you know, it gives you this wonderful workmanlike approach? Like, you know, you're just going in there and it's just for fantasy and uh, you've got your formula and you've got your technical
4: skills and You know, it's very much, you know, your work. Look, very much so. And I'll just, I'll share a little bit about the way I work. Um, I usually have maybe two or three works in progress going at the same time. But what I do is um, when I finish a draft of one manuscript, I put it away for three months and don't look at it again for at least three months. But then I'll go back to one of my other manuscripts Print it out in a font I've never seen it again. I've never seen it in. And then with the red stylus now on the tablet, make little corrections, you know, mention, you know, this dialogue is pretty bad or the pacing's a bit slow here, or this character is underdeveloped developed. And then I'll go and work through and make those changes and do the rewrites, and then that novel gets put aside for. Three months, and what usually happens? I'll have one that's in the early stages of development, one that's about mid stage, and one that's almost finished. And when I don't have hardly any corrections to make, I know that that book is ready to submit to my publisher. So that's kind of the way I work and the way I sort of decide. But but to answer your question, what does happen in those three months? You often at Odd moments get ideas for better plot twists or how you want to tweak a character or whatever for, for the actual novel you're not actually looking at at that time. But it's great because you add those notes, I write those notes or I dictate those notes into my phone. And so when I go back to that particular work in progress, I've also got new ideas for it and new ideas to make it better.
3: See, the way you describe it, I can really see the craft of writing and the discipline of writing. Do you worry that with new technology that, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, spawning a generation of people that are losing those skills, that we enable them
4: to write novels? Oh, that's a good point. But the, the good thing is there is still a lot of, shall I say, in inverted commas, younger people. There's a lot of millennials and Jet Set out there who are into novels um, and they are reading and they are out there. So I don't think those skills are lost. I just think other skills, like other media skills, newer media skills are also being added to the mix, which sort of maybe lessens the amount of people who read. One thing uh, that's interesting about my novels, James, I actually know um straight women are my biggest audience older gay men love my books but i know my audience is mainly women but that's because in general women do read more than men
3: it's so fascinating isn't it because i was going to say you know if you if you look at what's happening on social media you could be forgiven for thinking that you know people just don't read anymore so it's refreshing to know that people do why do you think women read much more than men do
4: I think I think um, because women are more um, into words and men love television. <laughs> they they love the visual. Um, one thing I'll give a quick plug for though, because they are Melbourne based, is I'm part of a group called the Rainbow Literary Society. Online, it's very much a um, a women a women loving women. Um, romance group, but we go out and there 's a few of us um, authors within Australia who go out around the country and um, and you know do a bit of a author reading night and a q and a night and uh, the only reason i 'm mentioning it while i 've got a chance to james is because we were meant to do it in october in Melbourne, but with all the lockdowns and everything we 're not quite sure when it will be, but we plan to have one of those events in melbourne so I will definitely make sure I let you know about it when it when it happens.
1: 3CR. You're listening to an interview with novelist Kevin Clare on 3CR, in your face? I'm getting a lot less writing done because
4: one of the issues... I live with my husband and partner of 31 years and I need to be totally alone to write otherwise I can't get in the headspace. Um, so, since lockdown, my writing has gone to a snail pace. Uh, my beautiful husband, Warren, goes out and volunteers two mornings a week. So, I get a bit of writing done. But by the time I get into the swing of things, he's already coming home. So, I've, I'm trying to work out some other alternative um, processes. Even with him home, without lockdown, the two days he'd go volunteering, I go to the local library and spend the whole day there and write quietly to, you know, and get these novels done. But, yeah, during lockdown, it's been a lot slower. I'm currently trying to work on the sequel to my dystopian Social Media Central, which is called Virtual Insanity, and I'm coming up with other, all these other processes in a way to get it written that's against the way I usually write because that's that's my goal for September to to get the next draft done of that particular work in progress.
3: You're an avid you're an avid walker. Uh, you walk a lot around the streets of Marrickville. Uh, what are your observations about pandemic life when you do get out and see other people walking around? Like, what are your observations of how this lockdown is affecting Sydney?
4: Uh, it's an interesting one because um, yeah, uh, me and Warren. We'll go for a long walk first thing in the morning. What we did notice about a year ago, people were still well, half half the people you passed still said hello, you know, and this was all new and it was all a bit freaky. Um, and up until the huge case numbers in Sydney, there was still a lot of people walking, exercising, smiling, saying hello, but. At the moment, with the huge cases we're having in 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 New South Wales, only about half of them are as friendly. Some people on rare occasions uh, are dying to have a chat with someone and people have struck up conversations with us, which is kind of nice but this time around, because this has gone well for a long time as far as you know Sydney side is concerned there's uh, yeah, it's kind of harder to say hello or uh, to people, cause, because to me, just saying good morning to someone as you walk past is, you know, a way to make their day and try to keep us all connected. But uh, yeah, here there's been a change. What's it been like in Melbourne?
3: Oh, look, you know, um, it's kind of like people are in a war zone when you see them walking around. You know, I think that whenever we go into lockdown, because we've been in and out of lockdown, um, it changes everyone's demeanour. This lockdown, I mean, they're all different, but this lockdown, um, I think it's been pretty hard for people because we had a donut day. You know, we had zero recorded cases. And then, you know, within 36 hours, we were back into lockdown. And I think that meant that it was a real jolt for people. And that, with the realities of Delta variant and and vaccines and all of that, we're kind of in this mode, I think, where we're thinking life's never going to quite go back to normal ever again. And that is really depressing.
4: I think it'll be a little while. I, 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 I mean, I, I fear that it's going to be, you know, that near the middle of the century when life is a, a lot more normal and re, we'll remember what it is. But one, one of my concerns, I know this is not what the topic of this conversation is about, one of my concerns is that we're going to have a variant that's really going to start affecting kids and I think that's when the world is going to drastically try and get the third world all injected because, you know, these variants are what, are what the issue is.
3: And of course, all of these topics really, I think, you know, fuel the need for fantasy novels, like the ones you write, where people can actually um, escape from this reality. And the dream world is such a wonderful place to kind of, you know,
4: fuel those fantasies. I agree. I agree. Um because everyone's fascinated with dreams, and especially if you think back to the nineteen nineties, people were really into dream analysis and you know what it all mean and M- Manson, Carl Jung and all the rest. Um and so yes, yeah, so so the, the dreamscape is a beautiful place to explore, especially I'll give myself a plug in my new novel The Midnight Man available in print and ebook everywhere.
3: And of course the dream world is an area that we know so little about that it kind of gives that
4: plausibility to anything that you write, doesn't it? yeah you can go in anywhere anywhere place you want um one thing with the Midnight Man it does include um sections where Asher shows um Stan parts of his former life that wasn 't in the earlier drafts. I really kept it to the dreams being the focus. but as the novel developed, there is essentially pretty much a love triangle going on. And so the three men involved, Asher the dream character, Stanley and his partner um, Francesco, I started bringing them all together in the dreamscape so that they could also argue and reevaluate their relationships and especially with um, Francesco and Stanley who are the, you know the real life characters. Having them say things honestly to each other in the dreamscape when Stanley knows Francesco doesn't remember what they've said in the dreamscape but it probably has affected his subconscious was an interesting um, road to take and to develop the story.
3: Heaven Claire, It's a fantastic book, The Midnight Man. I really loved reading it. Thank you so much for joining me on FreeCR today.
4: Thank you again, James. It's always a pleasure to be on your show
3: we see a
5: Listening to 3CR Radio.
1: Sovereignty was never ceded. also heard from Blondie, Dreamin'. Taking us out is Sarah McLachlan, Withdrawn to the Rhythm. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. True.